All right, let's get underway with Lamentation chapters 3 to 5 and finish up this trimester um, on Jeremiah and Lamentations. Uh, if this were an interactive class, as the next one is going to be, one of the first things I would ask is, what has impressed you most? I like asking that question at the end of a study about the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. So I'm not asking for you to react, but just think on that for a little bit, because each time I study a book like Jeremiah, I've taught it many times, but each time I teach it again, there's something about that that impresses me more than it did uh, the time before. There'll be something that I, I, uh, I, I didn't see the last time, and hopefully that'll be the same thing with you. Here are our five chapters of Lamentations. You remember last time, if you were not here, uh, I'll just remind you, this is Hebrew poetry. This is uh, written uh, as funeral dirges or funeral songs with the last one being somewhat of an exception to that, and we'll get to those exceptions, and you're looking for that in your handout a little bit later. Um, but these are five separate songs. So when we go from chapter 1 to chapter 2, which we did last week, this is a separate song. There may be something mentioned there that was also already mentioned in the first song, but this is a separate song. This is a separate poem. So these are poems or funeral dirges or funeral songs. So there are five of those, so the, the book divides itself naturally into five sections. So we have the suffering of Jerusalem, chapter 1. We're going to see that again in chapter 3. And we're going to see it again in chapter 4. So that's why this is repeated. But nonetheless, chapter 2 dealt with the focal point being God's anger against Jerusalem. Now we're ready for chapter 3. We're going to see the prophet's suffering and his plea, chapter 3. We'll see the siege on Jerusalem and its cause in chapter 4. And then chapter 5 deals with the prayer for restoration. And so we'll talk about how those are distinct and how they differ one from the other here in just a moment. Let's start with chapter 3. What we're going to do, as we did with chapters 1 and 2, because of the nature of this being Hebrew poetry, it doesn't have the rhyme and the rhythm that you have in our poetry, but it is written poetic form. And so there'll be a statement made and then another statement made very similar to that again, and maybe another statement made. That's the nature of Hebrew poetry. But one of the things I want you to see is, we want to see the high points. What is this section about? Perhaps as you read a curse, did a cursory reading of that, you may have gone through that and said, well, I, I get some of this, but I'm not getting the gist of everything. That's what this class is about. We want to get the gist of what Lamentations 3, 4, and 5 are about. So here's what chapter 3 is about. It deals with the prophet Jeremiah, and I think he, be, he is the author. Some think not. We talked about that last time. But it deals with the prophet's suffering and his plea. And so we see four things that happen here in chapter 3. We're going to see that Jeremiah's suffering in verses 1 to 18, that the, his hope is in the Lord, and then we'll see the plea to Jerusalem to make a change, to repent, and then there's the plea to the Lord for deliverance. Now, the first 18 verses, as we start into that, uh, seem on the surface like he's lashing out at God. And he reminds us of another Old Testament character who is the... the uh, Old Testament character of Job. There's going to be some language very similar to that, and you're looking for that in your handout at some point. We'll come to that a little bit later, particularly at verse 12, where he talks about being set up for target practice. But unlike Job, uh, that uh, Jeremiah immediately turns in the same song and talks about how God is his defense and God is his mercy and how that God has not uh, left us, but our hope is in God. 
So we can't stop at verse 18. In other words, we wouldn't want to read verses 1 to 18 and then quit and say, this is Jeremiah's picture. There's a greater picture than that. So let's work through this and hit the high points. Jeremiah talks about following the siege, the final siege where Jerusalem fell. Following that, he fills all alone. So get the picture in verses 1 to 3. He said in verse 1, I am a man who's seen affliction, the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in the darkness and not in light. So he pictures, and again, this is poetic, much like some of our songs where there is some poetic license that are used. Not literally he's in darkness, but it's like being led in darkness and not in light. I feel lonely. You feel lonely in the darkness. Uh, surely he's turned against me time and again uh, throughout, uh, throughout the day. So he feels like he's just walking alone. There is no help. I feel so lonely in this following this siege. I feel like I'm in darkness and not in light. All right, that's part of his suffering. Let's get verses 4 to 6. The point here is that he hurts. He said, he aged my flesh and my skin and have broken my bones. He has besieged me. He has surrounded me with bitterness and woe. Uh, each phrase doesn't necessarily need a comment, but we're just trying to get the picture of how he suffers. He set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. I feel like he's kind of cast me off in a grave. I feel like that's what God's done with me. And here's, here's one of the lessons I'm learning from that. Jeremiah is an innocent man. Innocent in what sense? He did not contribute to the downfall of Judah. Uh, Jeremiah did not, uh, is not part of the group of sinners that caused the fall of Ju Judah and Jerusalem. And yet he's suffering right along with everybody else. That is, he's suffering the, the loss of the city, he's the loss of the temple, the loss of the walls, and to see his people go off into captivity. He's suffering like everybody else. There's something to be learned from that, and we perhaps will have time for that a little bit later. Beginning at verse 7 now, he says, he pictures it as suffering and I can't escape. Uh, that he has hedged me. Now this is the similar language of, uh, of Job. Job talked about being hedged, and that he hedged me in so that I can't get out, and has made my chain heavy. I feel like I'm chained, and it's a heavy chain, and I can't move. I feel like there's, there's, a, there's a wall put around me, and I can't get out. Uh, and I cry and he shuts out my prayer. I don't think he's saying God doesn't listen to me at all, but it's like I'm pleading for the city and I'm pleading for my people and it's like my prayer's not being heard. I feel like I'm just locked in. He's blocked my ways with hewn stone and has made my paths crooked. It's like I can't go down the straight path. I just feel like I'm limited here. He's describing how he suffers and that's all we're needing to see. Is he suffering and he feels like he can't es escape? Verses 10 to 15, now he describes it as, I feel like I'm being ambushed. I feel like I've been ambushed. Look, he said, it's like a, a bear lying in wait and a lion in ambush. I feel like I I'm, I'm walking along this lonely road and, and a bear's going to jump out and consume me and a lion's going to jump out and consume me. He's turned aside his ways and torn me to pieces. Notice verse, verse 12. This is where he sounds like Job, and you're looking for that in your handout. This is the terminology of Job. Job had said the same thing. He set me up as a target for his error. I feel like God set a target on my back and pulls back his arrow and shot it at me. Is what I feel like. I'm suffering here as God brings destruction upon the city of Jerusalem and the final siege that brings down this great nation. He's caused his arrows uh, uh, the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. Again, he shot arrows at me is what he's done. 
has filled me with bitterness and woodworm, he said at verse 15. Now beginning at verse 16, he pictures peace and strength are gone. Now we're going to come back and summarize some of this in just a moment. But notice at verse 18, he's broken my teeth uh, with gravel and covered me with ashes. In other words, I feel like my, my, my strength is gone. I feel like I've broken my teeth. I feel like I've been covered up with ashes. Notice the wording at verse 17. He, you have moved my soul far from peace and have forgotten prosperity. And I have said my strength and my, uh, my hope have perished from the Lord. I feel like all of my strength and any hope is gone. Now, what have we seen in 1 to 18? You, you say, well, that, the, that's a mouthful and all of that. It, it certainly was. But I, I feel like I'm all alone. I'm hurting with the nation as it crumbles. I'm, I feel like I can't escape. I've been hedged in. I feel like I'm, I'm being ambushed. And all my strength and all the peace is gone. No wonder we call him a weeping prophet because he has every reason to weep. In fact, let's get ahead of ourselves to verse 48. He talks about my eyes overflow with rivers of water. Uh, that I'm just, I've cried my eyes out for the circumstance that's going on. Now, now I'm, I might make a note that the other chapters are acrostic. This one is too. And each in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, there are 22 verses. Chapter 4, there's 22 verses. And with each of those... Um, it's in alphabetical order of the Hebrew alphabet, so we don't notice this in English, but you have uh, each verse is, begins with the succeeding, uh, uh, succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But in chapter 3, it's three times as long. And the reason for that is because there are three verses given to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's, it's not just longer, it's exactly three times longer in number of verses. So let's go now, beginning at verse 19. Unlike Job's picture, now Job later in the book after his rebuke would have this picture, but not in the early stages of the book. Unlike Job, now he turns and immediately says, though my hope is, this is how I feel, verses 1 to 18, but my hope is in the Lord. Now there's something very practical in 19 to 21. He said, remember my afflictions and my roaming. Look at verse 21, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. You might underline verse 21, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. And so what I'm learning from verse 21 is that he remembers, and when, when in the midst of this horrible suffering that he's going through, the prophet sees hope, and when he remembers that hope, that, that stirs this hope within him. When I realize the mercies of God, I remember how merciful God is, and I remember what God has done, then that stirs hope within me. Now, something very practical in that, which is, ought to be obvious, when, when we're going through troubles and we feel like we're hedged in and we feel like that times are, are difficult for us, if we just remember what God is and what God has done, instead of focusing on the problem, focus on God, hope will be reborn within us. And that's what uh, Jeremiah is saying. Now, in verse 22, he makes the point that God is faithful. He said, though the Lord's mercies, or through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. Look at verse 23. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So in what sense is God's mercies new every morning? Um, you're looking for that in your handout uh, if you hadn't noticed that question yet. It's, it's new in the sense that it's fresh and it's, a, it's abundant. God's mercies never get old. There are some things that you have and then a year later it's old and, and it's the same thing it was a year ago. 
It's nothing fresh about it. You don't have any more of it. But the mercies of God is fresh as if it's, it's brand new today. And there's an abundance of it. You get more and you more and more and more and it's constantly fresh. It never grows old. It's as fresh today as it was uh, at the very beginning of time. So his, his mercies are abundant. And notice he said, great is your faithfulness. God never lets us down. So what he's focusing on is, is the, our hope is in the Lord in the midst of all this crisis, in the midst of this siege. God is obviously faithful. 25 and 26, the Lord will bless those that serve him. And there's the problem is they had not served him. Look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. So what does it mean to wait for him? It means to serve him. It means we're going to serve him to the soul that seeks him. There's your Hebrew poetry, another way of wording the same thing. Waiting on the Lord and seeking the Lord are parallel. So those who wait on the Lord, those who seek the Lord, uh, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In other words, be patient because through all these trials, through this siege, through the captivity, because the Lord will bless those that serve him. Now, verses 27 to 30 talks about there's benefit to be drawn from this suffering. There's some benefit from that. You see, this is a New Testament principle as well. Look at verse 27. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. In other words, what if it goes well and he never experiences any problems, any trials or tribulations all through his life till he gets into his golden years? Well, he'd be fortunate, I suppose, in one sense. But I would hope that you would have the attitude as you look at your children and grandchildren that you hope they go through some struggles in their life because of the benefit they get from that. And he talks about that right here beginning at verse 27. So it's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may be hope. In other words, when he finally bows down completely to the ground, because of the struggles and the trials and the tribulation he's going through, he begins to recognize his only hope is in the Lord. When we're driven to our knees, we recognize we, we have nothing else but God. And so he said, it's good for a man to have this yoke in his youth. Uh, let him, look at verse 30, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be, uh, be, uh, be full of reproach. And uh, for the Lord has not cast him off forever. Now we'll come back to verse 31 here in just a second. Uh, I think the point is there is benefit in the suffering. So even though J Jeremiah says this is terrible, this is really terrible, it, it drives us to our dependence upon God is what it does. And so we ought to go through some trials and we want to go through some trials. You want your children to go through some trials because of our dependence ultimately upon God. Now, look, notice beginning at verse 31, the problem is not caused by the Lord. And yet, if we only had verses 1 to 18, it sounds like God did all this to us. So Jeremiah clarifies the point, God didn't do this to us. So look beginning at verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief, yet he shows compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. In other words, the Lord doesn't arbitrarily say, you know what, I think what I want to do, I think I want to cause some trouble for man. And so watch what I do to Judah. I'm going to stir it up over there and I'm going to cause their, their city to crumble and fall. Do you know what God does? God didn't cause that. God didn't cause that at all. 
Now, beginning at verse 34, the, and so evidence of that, okay, the Lord doesn't want injustice. The Lord doesn't want injustice. Look at verse 34. To crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth and turn aside the justice due to man before the face of the Most High or subvert a man in his cause, the Lord does not approve. Start with the last phrase. There's some things God doesn't approve of. God doesn't want. What does he not want? He doesn't want to subvert a man in his cause. He doesn't want to turn aside justice. He doesn't want to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth. He doesn't want just arbitrarily to say, you know what, I think I'll crush this nation, watch them squirm, watch them suffer. I think I'll do that to another nation. Let's see what it'll do to them. God doesn't do that. So his point is, in this song, or this poem, God doesn't cause all the problems. God doesn't cause all the problems. Our hope is in the Lord. That's not where our problem is. The problem was not caused by the Lord, verses 31 to 33, the Lord doesn't want injustice. But he says, I'll tell you what though, look at verse 37 and 38, the Lord is in control. We see this principle all through. Now Daniel is yet to come, not only in, in our order of study, we're going to start into Daniel Sunday morning, but in order of sequence of what's going on here, Daniel's yet to come. And Daniel's going to make the point when they get over into captivity, God rules in the kingdoms of men. He's going to repeatedly make that point. So let's see that in 37 and 38. Who is he who speaks and, and uh, it comes to pass when the Lord uh, has not commanded it? It is not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed. What's his point? Uh, whatever happens that God did not let it happen, or God caused it to happen, or God gave permission for that. In other words, God's in control. So while God did not cause it, and there is benefit, God will use it to his advantage. Nothing ever happens like one nation rising against another, or Babylon coming, or Assyria coming, or Babylon falling, that God's not involved somehow. And so God is ultimately on his throne and in control. What a powerful, powerful lesson to learn. Now look at verse 39 to finish that section. God is fair when he punishes. Uh, why should uh, a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? In other words, no one has, no man can complain, you know you shouldn't punish me. I shouldn't be punished for sin. That, that doesn't say he's not going to complain, but he has no basis for his complaint. In other words, God's fair. Judah has no reason to complain because they sinned and they know they sinned and that's why they fell. And when Babylon falls, they can't say, we know God wasn't fair. They know why they fell. And so what about just learning the second section? God is our hope. Jeremiah says, this is terrible. Let me tell you how bad it is. He said, I feel all lonely and I feel like God's shooting arrows at me is what it feels like. But our hope is in the Lord. The Lord didn't cause this. We brought it on ourselves. And... Uh, the Lord is merciful, and our hope is in the Lord. Now, we could stop at that point and say, you know what? We've learned something here, that in the midst of trials, tribulation, that we didn't bring on ourselves, but we're suffering along with those who caused it. Our hope is in the Lord, and that's where our true hope is. Now, let's go to the third section. Remember, there are 66 verses, so we got a ways to go in this, this song. 40 to 47, there's a plea to Jerusalem to repent. And you need to watch for three things for two reasons. One, it's if you're in your handout, if you're filling that out. And furthermore, make a marginal note in your text, because this is good practical stuff right here at uh, 40 to 42. It's a plea for repentance, though the word repent is not used here. And there are three things that are essential for them to turn back. The first, and they're on the screen with the check marks. 
There needs to be self-examination. Let us search out and examine our ways. If anyone's going to turn to the Lord, they need to make a self-examination. No one ever turns to the Lord who didn't first look at themselves and say, you know what, I'm not right with the Lord. So the first thing to do is search out yourself. So Jeremiah says in this song, uh, saying, you know what, we're suffering. The Lord didn't cause this. But I tell you what, what we need to do is turn to the Lord. This will remind us to turn to the Lord. So take the moment and examine yourself. Secondly, turn to the Lord. Turn back to the Lord. That implies you've turned from the Lord. That implies you're not with the Lord. That implies you're not right with the Lord. So turn back to the Lord. Examine yourself, and what you'll find is you're not right with the Lord, and turn back to the Lord. That's a change. And then verse 41. Let us lift our hearts and hands to the God of heaven. Notice the wording here at verse 42. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not pardoned. I don't think, take that to be a complaint that you hadn't pardoned us. You, you hadn't pardoned us because we, we've sinned. we still got sin we need to deal with. And so here was a confession and acknowledgement. So do a self-examination, turn to the Lord and acknowledge that sin. And that was what hadn't been done. Had that been done years earlier, the siege would not have happened. Now let's begin at verse 43 now and talk about sin separates us from God. I'm going to hit the high points and don't have time to deal with all of that because we've got to get to uh, the, the, the fourth and the fifth song. So in this section, 43 to 47, the point is simply sin separates us from God. Here's why you need to repent, verses 40 to 42. You need to repent because this is what sin does for you. It separates you from your God. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You've covered yourself with a cloud that the prayer should not pass through. Verse 44 is most, most interesting. You've got a question in your handout for that. It, 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 because of our sin, it's like you put a cloud between us and you. You've covered yourself with a cloud and we're sending prayers up and they're not getting through to you. His complaint is not, God, you're not letting the prayer through, but you put that cloud there because of our sin. Do you ever feel like you pray to God and, and God's not hearing and you think God's not answering and, and it may be that God's put a cloud between you and him? How so? Well, because we have sin. 1 Peter 3, 7, our prayers, hinder, our prayers are hindered because of, of, of our sin. Now let's jump to the next section. And this gets us down to the end of this, this song. Here's the plea to the Lord for deliverance. So notice the progression of thought that Jeremiah follows. We're suffering, our hope is in the Lord. He makes a plea to them for repentance. And then he turns and makes a plea to the Lord for deliverance. And so let's see what he says in, uh, in this section. Uh, starting at verse 48 now. He said... Uh, my, uh, he's basically overwhelmed, verses 48 to 54, he's overwhelmed with sorrow. Notice the wording of verse 48 particularly. This pretty much summarizes that first section of 48 to 54. My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. In other words, Jeremiah looks out at the city, sees the walls burned down, he sees the temple burn, the people have gone. He said, rivers of water. Uh, David said the same thing, Psalm 119, 136. Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they kept not thy law. Uh, that's an overstatement, rivers of water. In other words, have you ever heard somebody say, I've shed barrels and barrels of tears? 
Not literally, but I mean, I've shed tears till I can't shed anymore. That's the way Jeremiah felt. Um, now, let's notice um, at verse 55, the plea here is to punish the enemy, the one that caused this. Now, there's a couple of thoughts here that I'll get to at verse 60 and 61 in a moment. But he said, I called on you from the lowest of the pit. And um, notice at verse 60, you have seen all their vengeance, all the schemes against me. In other words, he's making a plea uh, that the enemy would be dealt with. And let's get verse 61, then we'll talk about who the enemy may be. You have heard their reproach, O Lord, all their schemes against me, the lips of my enemies. I think the, there's two thoughts about who the enemies are. One is, and I think it's the predominant thought and most likely is the case, he's talking about in context with the siege that it's Babylon. And so it's the, an enemy nation. In this case, it would be Babylon. Assyria has done gone. Uh, the next empire hasn't risen yet. So I think he's probably talking about Babylon. The other idea, which is not as prominent as that, and some suggest it may be the case, that this could be some of his enemies that, uh, if this is being written by Jeremiah, some of the enemies from among the people of Judah that were enemies of Jeremiah. And where he talks about my enemies. And so that's one reason they think that. Probably Babylon. But I'll throw that out and you do with it what you want. Um, you probably won't settle 100% one way or the other. I haven't. Now, in verse 64, repay them, O Lord, according to the works of their hands. That gets the key of what's going on in chapter, at the end of chapter 3. All right, that's 66 verses, three verses per letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so we have a triple song because of that. So what do we see? Jeremiah's suffering. The hope is in the Lord. Then the plea to them to repent and the plea to the Lord for uh, deliverance and the overthrowing of uh, the enemy. Now let's go to the next two songs are shorter. They're a third as short as um, that song we just covered. So we're going to take as much time with chapter 4 or chapter 5. We'll take even less with chapter 5. Chapter 4, what's it about? It's the siege on Jerusalem and its cause. And you say, well, we've already dealt with that. Remember, this is a separate song. And so it uh, would be sung at a different time. And so it's not uh, intended to be just a, a continuation of chapter 5. So this is a song written from the vantage point of the siege, the suffering during the siege. So picture it as if you haven't, it's been a while since you've sung song number 3. We're ready for song number 4 a few weeks later. And let's see what it says. So there's suffering during the siege, and then sin is, is the reason. Let's talk about the suffering in chapter 4. Again, we'll just hit some of the high points. Um, he says in verse one, verses 1 and 2 that Judah is like gold that has been tarnished. And so he said the gold has become dim. How changed is the fine gold. And the stones of the sanctuary are scattered the head of every street, the precious sons of Zion, viable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots. You see, fine gold is very valuable. But not only is it tarnished, but it's like a value like the clay pots, which are worthless. So here's a city that was in all of its fine glory, is not only tarnished, but like clay pots. How she has fallen. All right? There's extreme hunger, verses 3 and 4. We saw that in Jeremiah where there was the famine and there was extreme hunger uh, toward the end of the nation. We see that here following the siege. 
that uh, even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughters of my people have become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongues of their infants cling to the roof of their mouth. The young children ask for bread and no one breaks it for them. There's not, and the children are crying for something to eat. No one's giving them anything. Not out of cruelty. They don't have it. There's hunger. This is just descriptive of, of, the, uh, of the suffering during the siege. All right? The next thing he mentions, they had lived in luxury. Now they would welcome an ash heap. Uh, look at verse 5. Those who ate delicacies and ate, uh, uh, are desolate in the streets. And those that were brought up, uh, who were brought up in scarlet embraced ash heaps. Can you imagine the, mo- the wealthiest of people uh, that had their scarlet and had their fine gold, etc., are setting off over here and the best they can hope for is sitting in ash heaps. This isn't good. This isn't good at all. Look at verse, verse 6. He pictures it as being worse than Sodom uh, when it fell. Verse 6. The punishment of iniquity on the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which is overthrown in a minute, in a moment. Look at verse 7 and 8. The picture here is those that looked healthy now look like death warmed over. Uh, the, uh, her Nazarite was brighter than snow and whiter than milk, and those were more ruddy in the body than rubies. But now their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Have you ever seen somebody that was a picture of health at one point in their life, and you hadn't seen them in a good while, and they'd been sick, and when you see them, you don't even recognize them anymore? You say, man, uh, to use an expression from my childhood, they look like death warmed over. I mean, this is awful. And he said, that's what they look like. They were once healthy. This is how the suffering was. Let's go further. Look at verse, verse 9. It's a painful death. In other words, it would be better, if I might put this in uh, verse 9 in, in a modern day paraphrase, I wish somebody would just shoot me. That's a lot easier than quicker than starving to death. That's a painful, slow death. This siege is not fun. Very painful. And then finally, they reach the point they're eating their own. Some think perhaps that may just be a descriptive of how bad it was. Others think it's perhaps literal, and I take it to be literal, that some had reached the point they're eating their own children. Uh, Some in Israel had reached the point they were sacrificing their children to idols, so getting rid of their children wasn't a big problem. And so now perhaps they're using some of their children even for food, uh, if if, if it be literal. So that's the suffering during the siege. Now let's finish up that chapter by looking at the sin being the reason. I want to notice three things primarily here, uh, and you're looking for this in your handout, and that's the first three things you see on the, uh, and the, the bullet points here. Uh, let me start at the end, in interest of time, and then we'll go back to those three. Verse 22 emphasizes they sinned. Here's the problem. And then the point is about Edom. Edom will face the same punishment. Edom would gloat over the fall of Judah, but Edom's going to face the same punishment. You're going to be punished no, no better. These were enemies, by the way. And uh, Judah and Edom. And he's saying, you're going to be punished the same way, with the same punishment. Now let's go back and get those three points. What led them to this point? Well, first of all, their leaders led them astray. Their leaders led them astray. Look at verse 13. Because of the sins of the prophets and the iniquity of the priest. In other words, they, they, uh, their false teachers and their priests led them astray. As the leaders go, so go the people. We've made that point several times. They finally reach the point they're done with these, these, these leaders that they put so much confidence in, they lose all confidence in them before it's over. I think that's the point of verse 15. They finally tell them to go away, go away, do not touch us. 
But a second reason is they lost respect for God's leaders. Look at verse 16. The face of the Lord is scattered. Has, uh, the face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priest nor show favor to the elders. See, that's no different than today. When people lose respect for God's people and they listen to the false prophet, they're gone. They're gone. They're gone. And verse 17, here's the third thing, that they reject God and put their confidence in man. Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help, and our watching we watched for a nation that could not save us. That's Egypt. You say, how do you know? Because in Jeremiah, that was the nation they turned to for help, and they were no help. They didn't save them. And so vainly we watched for this nation. Are you going to come and save us? Are you going to come and deliver us from Babylon? Didn't happen. So sin is what brought them to this point. And how did they get there? Because their leaders led them astray. They had no respect for God's leaders. And they had more confidence in another nation than they did in their God. And this is why this happened. So this song kind of reminds them of this is what brought this all on you. This could have been avoided. You hate to beat, beat, uh, 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 kick a guy when he's down. They're down. But this is making the point. You brought this on yourself. You brought this on yourself. All right. We've got time to go through chapter 5 now. Chapter 5 is different in two ways. And so you're looking for this in your handout if you're filling that out. Um, the two ways in which it's different is this is not um, in alphabetic order. It does have the, the, the Hebrew alphabet involved, but it's not in alphabetic order like the first four songs. So it's different. It's different also in this sense. This seems to be more of a prayer, though it is in poetry, poetic form, than a song. Maybe it was a song, a prayer put in song. But it seems to be more of a prayer and a plea. And so I call this chapter simply prayer for restoration. And so this is the chapter right here, two major points. He asked the Lord to remember what, what has happened, how tragic their suffering was, and the reason for it is that we've sinned. And then he asked the Lord to renew them as in the days of old. Um, so let's work through that and, uh, that'll give us, I think we've got time to do that and then look at a couple of practical things and then we'll be done. So here is verses one to 18 verses one to 14. This is how, how tragic the, uh, the suffering was. Um, look at verse, verse two, our inheritance has been turned over to aliens. Look at the, there are just various descriptions of just how terrible this was. Our inheritance, this, this is our land, this is our nation, this is our, the, the, the promised land God gave us, and it's been turned over to Babylon. They're, they're in control. Our houses to foreigners, verse 2. We have become orphans. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for water to drink. In other words, water was so scarce and because of the famine that we happened to pay for water. We labor and have no rest, verse 5. We've given our hands uh, to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians uh, to be satisfied with bread, and our fathers sinned and are no more. In other words, here's the consequences, but we bear their iniquities. Now, I've got a question on that in your handout. How is that true? Our fathers sin and we bear the iniquities. And harmonizing that with Ezekiel 18 and every other New Testament reference to sin and consequence, they don't bear the guilt of their father's sins, but the consequence of that. 
And that happened, and Jeremiah did that. Jeremiah is suffering, as we saw in chapter 3, because of what others did. And so we do bear the consequence of our father's sin. If you're, if you're in sin and your children suffer because they're bearing the consequence of that. Not the guilt, but the consequence thereof. And so he's describing how bad that was. Now, uh, let's see, one other thing in that section before we get down to verse 15. Our skin is as hot as the oven because of the fever of the famine. We're ravished. Uh, they ravished the women of Zion. Uh, boys are staggering under the load of wood. And so they made servants out of the young boys and they ravaged the women. This, this is wartime. This is devastation. Now, beginning at verse 15, here is the reason for that tragic suffering. You say, well, we saw suffering in chapter 3. We saw it again in chapter 4. These are separate songs or separate points. Don't forget that. Now, beginning at verse 15, sin is the reason. Look at verse 16. The crown has fallen... From our head, woe to us, you might underline, for we have sinned. There's our problem. We sinned. We did wrong. We did wrong. We sinned. See, what Jeremiah was trying to tell him was, this is what's going to happen because of your sin. Now they're saying, you know what? We've sinned. Here's a lesson to learn from that. And if we don't get another lesson, this is, this is I hope, hopefully practical, you can take home with you. How often have you you warn somebody, the elders warn somebody, preachers have warned people. You, you do X, Y, Z, whatever that may be, you get into this marriage that you shouldn't get into. You're marrying somebody that, that you hadn't given thought to. And here's someone that's not serving the Lord and you get into that marriage and it's going to cause heartaches. And they do it anyway. Then what happens a few years later, they come up crying about their problems that could have been avoided. That's what we were trying to tell you to avoid. You know, Jeremiah's got to be thinking, I, I told you, I told you this was going to, I told you this was going to happen. I told you. I wasn't the only one Isaiah told you. And Hosea told you. And others have told you. And look what happened, and now you're crying because of the, the mess that you're in. And they're saying, we've sinned. That's what we tried to tell you. Let's get 19 to 22 to finish up. The point here is, renew us as in the former days. You, O Lord, remain forever. That is, He's eternal. He doesn't change. You're thrown from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for a long time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us. And are very angry with us. Restore us back to where we were. Well, that happens. That ultimately happens twofold. One, when they come back from Babylonian captivity. And ultimately, in the Messiah. I don't know about you, but, but Lamentations meant more to me this time going through it than it ever has. And hopefully it has for you. And same thing with the book of Jeremiah. Last week we mentioned three practical things to watch for in the book. There are many more, but these are three things. We listed them last week, so if you wrote these down, you've already got them. And that is, here's some things we learned. God's warnings came true. We just talked about that. Jeremiah said, it's going to happen. It did. Told you. Told you it's going to happen. Consequences of sin we bring upon ourselves, and the consequences of sin are great. If I learned anything, suffering was terrible. We saw that in every chapter. It was terrible. It was terrible. And the reason for it is because they have sinned. Well, that's the end of 
Jeremiah and Lamentations. That's the end of this trimester. Next week, we go into the study of hermeneutics. And I meant to say earlier, don't let that word scare you. It just means how to interpret the Bible. I think you'll find the class interesting and exciting. It's going to be interactive. At least the second half of it will be, second half of each class. And so come and be prepared for that. That's the end of Lamentations.